Listen, thank you so much for being here. I know that we have a couple of teams that are serving uh, in Clarkston and in London. We also are experiencing fall break um, here in Henry County, so be praying for all those families who are away. For those of you here, thank you uh, for being here. It's so good to see all of you. Um, we are going to start off a little bit differently today. I want to make you think about this question for just a second, okay? And then we're going to get into kind of the, the crux of why we're here. Uh, but think about this. Do you believe that God can do great things in your life? All right, now, th- that was a great answer, but I really want you to ponder and, and reflect on that. Like, do you really believe that God can do great things in your life? Do you believe that God can accomplish impossible things both in you and through you? Do you believe that God can do great things in your life? We talked about this last week. We started a new series called The Broken King. We're actually exploring the life of David. And what we said is we're not going to explore his life exhaustively. Instead, we're going to look at snapshots of his life. So it's going to feel like we're kind of scrolling through his Instagram feed, getting a good idea of who he is and why he even matters. So I hope that this exploration, if you will, through the next few months of the life of David will be one um, that's quite uh, inspirational to you, but also quite challenging and convicting to you as well. See, last week we talked about how David was the only person in all of the Bible that was referred to as a man after God's own heart. And I put before you on the table the, the question, do you want God to say that about you? Do you want God to say about you that you are a man who passionately pursues the heart of God? Do you want God to say about you that you are a woman who passionately pursues the heart of Christ? And we ask the question, what was it then if God referred to David as a man after his own heart, what was it then that drove David's heart to chase hard after God? And we said that David had an acute awareness of the goodness of God in his life. Like he was aware of God's character, who he is, what he had done. And that goodness of God is what drove David to passionately pursue him. I love this text in the Bible in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 verse 9. Don't turn there. Um, but, But listen to what the Bible says. It says, the eyes of the Lord are searching the whole earth. So here God is. He's on his throne. His eyes are searching the whole earth. Earth, and he's looking for those whose heart is fully committed to him. My prayer for my life, hopefully your prayer for your life, is that I, as the eyes of God are searching the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart, who's fully committed to him, that maybe, just maybe, he'll stop on you. Like maybe, just maybe, he'll stop on our church. That as he searches for a church that's fully committed, that totally trusts and totally obeys him, that something about Eagle's Landing will catch his eye. That, that something about your address will catch his eye. That something about the way that you live will catch his eye. We want to be that kind of church. We want to be that kind of student ministry. We want to be that kind of life group ministry. We want to be that type of school that catches the Lord's attention of people who undeniably pursue the heart of God. So where are we going today? Last week we talked about what it looks like to chase after the heart of God. Today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. This is what we're looking at today. How does God do improbable things through improbable people for his purposes, so so that his purposes are achieved? That's where we're headed today. God does improbable things through improbable people so that his purposes are achieved. Now, 
This is uh, rather a conditional statement, if I might say so myself. I don't typically refer to statements like this as conditional, and I don't think that they totally are conditional. But, but today, what I do want you to know is it, it, it kind of hinges on what we talked about last week. If you want to see God do improbable things to improbable people for his purposes, so that his purposes are achieved, it has a little bit to do with the fact that your heart is totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Okay, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we're going to be in chapter 16. 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Old Testament. Last week we were in 2 Samuel. That was the 10th book of the Old Testament. So we're going back a book, right in the middle of this book, chapter 16. I want to give you a little bit of context as to what's happening here in this text of Scripture to set the stage for where we're going today. Okay, so when we dive into chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, Samuel, the prophet, he is deeply distressed. You're going to see that this distress in his life is coming out of him. Maybe you know that Samuel's mother, Hannah, gave him a vision of a king for Israel. And when she gave Samuel this, king, this vision, she told Samuel that this king for Israel was to be a faithful king both to God and his people. Okay, so that's the vision that God gave Samuel's mom, Hannah, that Hannah passed on to Samuel. Samuel's now a prophet, and Samuel's job is to anoint the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, and you would see that he would anoint a guy by the name of Saul. Many of you know that Saul was the first king, and then David would come later. So when, when Hannah passes on this vision, she had an idea that she gave Samuel of what the king was supposed to look like. And she said, this king should be faithful to God. This king should be a man who's faithful to his people. This king should be a man who's genuinely in love with God and would lead the people of Israel to do the same. This king that you are to anoint is to be a king that would use his power and his authority to promote unity among God's people. This king that you are to anoint, Samuel, should be a king who would win the allegiance of his people merely by his affection for them. That's what this king is supposed to look like. But Saul, who had already been anointed king, was everything but the things that Hannah had envisioned. Was everything but what Samuel thought a king was supposed to be. See, Saul was arrogant. Saul was self-focused. Saul was full of himself. Saul was conceited. Saul had a circle around him, and he was the only one he ever thought about and that could occupy that circle. He was a rebellious king. Saul refused to do the will of God. So this causes Samuel to become a bit distressed, just as it would you if you were the one responsible for anointing the king of Israel, and you chose what looks like the wrong guy, though God gave instruction to do this. So Samuel's distressed. He, he is struggling. He had such high hopes for Saul. But these hopes were now shattered, and that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Bible says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now focus on those words. How long will you grieve? How long, God says to Samuel, Will you grieve? This question implies that Samuel is grieving too long. He's asking, how long will you grieve? Now, I want to talk real quickly this morning, kind of parenthetically, but rather uh, matter-of-factly, 
as well. I want to talk about this real quick. Grieving is a good thing. Many of you are walking through situations or circumstances in your life. Maybe you're not walking through them now. Maybe you have walked through them or you will walk through them. But grieving is a good thing. The church doesn't do a good job at talking about grief a lot. But grieving is a good thing. In fact, grieving is a God thing. But there's a few things that you and I need to understand about grief in order to grieve the right way according to Scripture. First, grief is the natural response to pain and loss. It's natural. When you experience difficulty in your life, when you walk through a season of suffering, when you experience pain or loss or struggle or discomfort, or maybe something doesn't go the way that you had planned, those things happen in life, and grief is a natural response to that. There's nothing wrong with grieving. In fact, if you were to walk through your Bible, you would see that Job grieved all the way through the book, wouldn't you? You would see that King David, almost every psalm that he had written was a psalm that had lamenting in it and grieving in it. A whole book of the Bible is written about grief. Hannah, Samuel's mother, she was found grieving. Naomi in the Bible, Jesus even in the Bible. You find these people grieving. So grieving is a natural response to pain and loss. You should not feel guilty for your grief. It's a natural response to pain and loss. But there's a second thing to grief you need to know. Grief serves a purpose. See, you and I, we learn in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, that grief can refresh our perspectives on life. In fact, when we grieve, we become more humble than we are when we're not grieving. So it changes, it shifts our perspectives on life. Grieving usually reminds us of the brevity of life, that life really does have an ending here on this earth. It humbles us. It reminds us of the brevity of life. You remember even Paul praying um, in 2 Corinthians, I believe, first chapter 1, the very first chapter. He tells us that, that the suffering that we go through fundamentally has a purpose and a meaning for our lives. That your grief, yes, it's a natural response to pain and loss, but it also serves a purpose for you. That purpose is to bring God glory, but also to bring you your good. So it has, uh, grief is a natural response to pain and loss. It serves a purpose. But the third thing I really want you to focus on this morning is that grief has its limits. Grief has its limits. It should be temporary. It's, it's seasonal. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 30, verse 5? He said, weeping may remain. Maybe your version says, weeping may tarry for the night. But joy comes in the morning. What he's not saying there is that you can weep today the loss of a child and in the morning you need to have joy. No, that that would be absolutely ridiculous, right? What he's saying there is that there's a season in your life where you do need to grieve, but you need to know that there's coming a day where your joy will be restored and you need to grieve, but your grief has to have limits. You cannot stay in your grief too long. So grief should be temporary. Listen, grief has its purpose, but it also has its limits. There's really two things about grief that we need to know as children of God. And this is really, you you know, we can mourn, but we have to mourn as those who have hope. This is really what we're talking about here. There's two things I want to show you about grief, and then we're going to move on. First, we need to express our grief to God. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through something difficult. Maybe it's something painful. Maybe it's some sort of suffering. Maybe it's some sort of loss. 
Maybe it's the loss of a child, a loss of a parent, a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job or something like that. And you're walking through a season of grief of your own. You need to know that you can express your grief to God. We need to express our grief to God. In fact, the Psalms are full of examples of pouring our hearts out before the Lord. But interestingly, one thing I love about the Psalms is they never end the same way that they begin. I mean, listen to Psalm chapter 13. It says this, How long, O Lord? You can hear the pain coming out of the psalmist's mouth. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? That's painful. That's the sign of someone who was hurt. How long will you hide your face from me? Do you even see me? Are your ears attentive to me? And then he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? That's how he begins. And that's verses one through two. But just a few short verses later, listen to how the psalm ends in verses five through six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt very bountifully with me. You can see that grief to God is a good thing, but it always ends differently than it begins. You go to God expressing your grief, but you come from God in praise and adoration to who he is and what he's doing in and through your life. We see this in Psalm 13, Psalm 23, Psalm chapter 30, Psalm 56, the Psalm 70s and 80s, all over the place. It's all through the Psalms. How these men and women, they express their grief to God, but they always leave better than they started. So we need to express our grief to God. That's the first thing we need to understand about grief. But the second thing is we need to share our grief with each other. We need to share our grief with each other. You do know that this is one of the biblical responsibilities of the church. Galatians chapter six tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens. And let me just say this because I think we need to know it and remember it, okay? I cannot bear every burden in this room. Our pastoral staff cannot bear every burden in this room. It's not the pastor's job to bear the burdens. It's the church's job to bear the burdens. This is why we encourage you to be in a life group because pain and grief and loss and suffering, they are inevitable parts of life. And when you walk through them, you will walk through them. You're gonna need a community of faith around you who can hold you up and pray with you and pray for you and walk through you through, through those difficult circumstances of pain and loss. You can't depend on me. You can't depend on our staff. You've got to depend on each other. The body of Christ is supposed to function in that way. It's our biblical responsibility. Paul says this as well in Romans chapter 12. He tells us, hey, when the people in your church rejoice, man, be there to rejoice with them. But when the people in your church suffer and they're in pain and they weep, you need to be there and weep with them as well. It's a beautiful portrait of what the church of God is supposed to look like. We need to share our grief with each other. But what is the natural response of man when we're walking through grief? We try to isolate ourselves. The very people that we need around us, we start to separate ourselves from. And we start to justify where I'm not really walking through this alone because I have my mom and my dad or my immediate family there with me. Though mom and dad and the immediate family are good, there's nothing that can replace your church family. I, 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 walk through the Bible and look. 
that's what we're there to do. It's an assignment that's been given to us as children of God to bear one another's burdens. So we need to express our grief to God, but we also need to share our grief with each other. So in our text this morning, God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve? How long will you grieve? This is what God is saying. God's saying to his child, hey, Samuel, enough is enough. Enough is enough. My plan for your life is not over. You cannot remain in this state of grief that you are currently in. My purposes in your life are not fulfilled. My purposes in your life are not done. This grief cannot continue to roll over you. And what God is saying to his child and maybe what he's saying to you today as well is, I need you, Samuel, to get up. I, I need you to lift up your head. And I need you to see that I have a plan for you to fulfill and I have a role for you to, to play. And as long as you're sitting here in your grief, reflecting on what has happened that has now paralyzed you, you'll never be able to make the impact that I have for you to make. I love this because God's not rebuking Samuel for his grief. God's rebuking Samuel for the length of his grief. Let me ask you a question this morning, church family. Is there in your life some grief that is standing in the way of you joyfully pursuing the plans of God for you? Is there some grief, some pain, some loss, some suffering that you are still holding so tightly to that it stands in the way of God fulfilling his purposes and his plans for your life? I mean, are you looking back and grieving over the mistakes of a past sin? You do realize that God promises you that when you give your life to him, he forgives, completely forgives, and wipes away all sin, past, present, and future. You don't have to let that sin of the past continue to paralyze you from your purpose and plan that God has for you for your future. You can walk in his promises even today. Maybe you're grieving a shattered dream. Maybe you had a plan for your life and this is where you were headed and that dream is now shattered and you are still grieving that dream. Maybe a plan that went astray. Maybe a friendship that was broken and you're still holding on to the pains of the past or the loss of that friendship. Maybe it was a move that you had to make that you didn't plan and you're still a little bit bitter about the move. My question again is, could it be that there's grief in the way of God's plan and purposes for you? Spend entirely too much time on that. Verse 1, it says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king. Now you can put in parentheses there, a new king, because they already have a king, that's Saul. But through the house of Jesse, he's going to come a new king. That's what he's referring to here among his sons, Jesse's sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Remember, Saul is an arrogant king. He's full of pride. He's into himself. God, if Saul hears that I'm looking for a new king to replace him, if Saul hears that my job as a prophet is to dethrone him and to enthrone someone else, he will chase after my life like he will literally kill me. What was man's, Samuel's, first response to this request that God made of his life? It was fear. 
Church, the fear of man is a very real thing. It's a thing that you struggle with. It's a thing that I struggle with. It's a thing that even the prophet Samuel struggled with. God calls Samuel to do something, and Samuel's first response is to be immediately filled with the fear of man. Fear of man is very powerful. In fact, the fear of man cripples our ability to do the very things that God has called us to do. Maybe you're here today and God has called you to do something very specific, but you know that there's consequences if you do it. And those consequences are the fear of man, or lined up with the fear of man. You see, fear of man can rule your heart, and when it rules your heart, it ruins your confidence in the Lord. And when the fear of man ruins uh, the confidence that you have in the Lord, it becomes like a vacuum. And it sucks away any passion for Jesus or obedience to Christ out of your life before you're completely dry. So Samuel's dealing with that. And it says, and the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Now, let's be honest, on the surface of this, this plan doesn't seem like a very good idea. It sounds rather sketch, quite frankly. Hey, you're going to go to a sacrifice, and you're going to play this role, but you have, this, you have this unspoken agenda over here that I want you to really fulfill. That's what happens. That's what's happening here. But we have to remember, though it might seem that way to us, the plans of God are always higher than the plans of man. God is orchestrating every single detail of this event to his liking. And in verse 4, he says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Okay? So now they're here at Bethlehem, and what you need to know is the city. They would all come together in basically a stadium. All right, now if you're going to go to Israel with us in April 7th, by the way, we still have like 10 couples that can still go. We have about 30-something people that are signed up. So if you still want to go, you're welcome to go. But if you go with us, what you're going to see is what one of these stadiums look like. So they would go to this stadium type thing, and they would go to it, and this is where they would make their sacrifices. So the whole city would come. Nobody would stay home. Like, everybody would go. So they come to this large stadium, and they would offer their sacrifice there. And Samuel is told here, I want you to show up to this event. But when you show up to this event, when everybody else is coming for the sacrifice, I want you to have a different agenda. An agenda that's beyond the ritual sacrifice. I want you to choose a new king. So God says to Samuel, you have one job. Your one job is to give Jesse one job. And Jesse's one job is to make sure his children are there. That's all you got to do. Go to this sacrifice and make sure Jesse and all of his boys are there. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem and it says, The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? The elders of the city could see it in Samuel's eyes. Oh, he has a purpose in which he is here. Do you come peacefully? I mean, these guys know that as soon as Samuel walked into the room, he is essentially that guy. He's that guy. I mean, as soon as he walks into the room, people start to tremble. That's what the Bible's telling us. The elders of the city, they get a little bit scared. They don't know what to expect. One of my mentors used to say this about Samuel, that Samuel is the Chuck Norse of ancient Israel. You know, he's a type of guy who blows bubbles with his beef jerky. Like, he is the Chuck Norse of Israel. Little boys want to grow up and be just like Samuel. I can imagine when you get to the stadium for the sacrifice, I mean, literally, they're handing out Samuel bobbleheads at the front gate. 
because he's that kind of guy. Samuel filled people with fear, and it says in verse 5, and he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and has another agenda. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, consecrating is a very interesting biblical term, okay? It goes along with holiness. Holiness means that you separate yourself from sin and you consecrate yourself to God. So that's what you're doing. You're doing it before a community of people. When you were consecrated, you would separate yourself from anything that is not holy. So anything that's worldly or sinful, you would separate yourself completely from. So imagine with me this picture of what's going on here in this story to know that this is more than a sacrifice now. Jesse is starting to catch on, by the way, in this point in the text, that a new king is about to be chosen. And it must be coming from his son. So each one, they're going to come before the crowd, and they're going to look the part of a king so that they might be chosen by Samuel. That's what they're going to do. Okay, so you got this crowd of people that are there for the ritual sacrifice. Jesse and his sons are going to show up. Jesse's sons are going to go before all the people, and Samuel's going to crown a new king. This is rather secretively because nobody knew the plan up front, but that's what's going on here. And the first son that's up is a guy by the name of Eliab. Eliab is the oldest son. He is charming. The Bible gives us indications that he is easy on the eyes. When Eliab stands up, the ladies in the room begin to whistle. That's who Eliab is. He is tall and he is confident. He commands attention when he walks in the room. And Samuel says this in verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is him. I mean, Eliab must be that guy. He is big and he is beautiful. He is chiseled like a statue. Like that's what Eliab looks like. Surely this is him. It says in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you underline anything in your Bible, I want to encourage you to underline or highlight verse 7 there. It is the, uh, basically the whole point of this entire passage. But it's something I would encourage you to memorize and internalize and to try to model and emulate your life after. This is the entire point of the passage. God doesn't look at what man looks at. God looks at the heart. In other words, what God is showing us here is that he's not impressed with anybody's charm. He's not impressed with your charisma. He's not impressed with your intellect. He's not impressed um, with, with all the things that the world might consider um, complimentary to you. He's not impressed with that. He's not impressed with your stature. He's not impressed with the flow of your hair or your baby blues. Like He's not impressed with any of that. The Bible says the only thing that God is interested in is your heart. That's it. So Eliab is rejected. And then in verse 8, it says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Well, neither has the Lord chosen this one. As soon as the name Abinadab was said, he was like, Based on your name alone, you're not going to be the king. Too complex. And then immediately after that, verse 9, then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, well, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Shema sounds too much like a well at SeaWorld. You're not the guy either. Verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, 
the Lord has not chosen these. So all the sons now have passed through the line. And Samuel said, the slipper does not fit any one of their feet. So what are we going to do? Where do we turn now? Verse 11. He looks, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are all your sons here? Is this all of them? Samuel's starting to catch on that if God said it was going to be one of your sons and none of these are it, somebody must be missing because God's faithful and God fulfills his promises and God doesn't lie. So something is going down and he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. One word, another phrase, describe everything you need to know. The Hebrew language here is so beautiful. He says, first, youngest. That's an indication that we need to pay attention. And the second is the phrase, keeping the sheep. Another indicator that something only God can do is about to happen. Why do you say that, Trey? Well, youngest is the Hebrew word for runt. It's runt. The the, the kid in the field is a skinny runt. He's not good for anything. If you look at him, he's not intimidating at all. He is so skinny that when he turns sideways, like he disappears. He, he, he hula hoops through a fruit loop. Like he, he, there's no way this guy is going to be a king. Like you just need to dismiss him. And then he adds on top of this, he's keeping sheep, which is a job that is reserved for the lowest of the lows. Keeping sheep is a shameful job reserved for the socially awkward people or even the slaves. So this, requ- this role that, 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 that this son is playing that's in the field requires little skill, little trade. There's nothing impressive about the kid in the field. That's what Jesse is saying about his own child. You don't want him. He's not the guy. We forgot about him. <laughs> so what's happening There's nothing about David that qualifies him to be king. In fact, he isn't worth, he's saying, Jesse, his dad's saying, he isn't worth our time, and he's not worth our attention. Pay close attention, friends. God is already trying to shift the perspective of me and you on how we view kingship. He is already trying to shift the perspective about when you and I long for a king of our hearts that we're not going to find it in the delights and the pleasures of the things of the world. The things that you might think fulfill you and satisfy you, he's already showing us, oh no, they won't. The king that's to come, he's not coming the way that you might have intended. He's coming even lower than that. This son, Jesse says, he's disregarded by me, his dad, And by us as a family, he's left and forgotten about during the most important gathering of the entire family. Everyone in the city is here at the stadium, except for that kid. He was not even extended an invitation to come. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Jesse, you had one job. Your one job was to get all of your kids to the sacrifice. And you failed to do that one thing. And then he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy guy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome, verse 12 says. I love this. The text is painting him perfectly. It says, now he was ruddy, just reminding you, not not only did Jesse communicate this to us, 
but now it's affirmed, right? It's affirmed. He is a ruddy guy. The word ruddy means he's redhead with freckles on his face. He's dirty. He smells like a pasture. Those things all flow together. That's not made up. That's for real. All right, so that's, that's the perception of this guy. He's a redhead kid. He has freckles. He's dirty. He smells. But the Bible makes sure that you know he has beautiful eyes. The point is that David doesn't look like a king. This kid that's now walking up, nothing about him says he is going to be a king. He, has, he, has, he, has, he does not look like a man of valor. He does not look like a man of war. He's a runt. And this runt has a baby face. He hasn't even started using a razor yet. Like, he doesn't know how to shave. Like, he's a runt. He's not the king. So the question for you and I is what's asked here. It says, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. What on earth would occupy what really is being painted as Ed Sharon over here, right? Like, all of a sudden, this kind of figure. Like, what's going what's gonna to occupy, like, how is this kid going to become king? It's simple. It wasn't David's physique that led him to be crowned as king. It wasn't his list of accomplishments that led him to be crowned as king. The only thing that led David to be crowned as king was that he was a man after God's own heart. God knew that if David was his king, that he himself, God, would have David's attention. He didn't care about his stature. He didn't care about his physique. He didn't care about his intellect. He didn't care about his grades. He didn't care about his accomplishments or even his accolades. All he cared about is that David was willing to follow faithfully and truly the heart of God. And the Bible says in verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Go back to verse 6 and 7. I think this is the whole... Uh, I want to go back because this is the meat of the text. It says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the, the, the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A broken man is now going to become a broken king. An ordinary man is about to become the king of Israel. Really, there's three simple things that I want to walk away with today based on David's character and David's story that I think parallel nicely and apply nicely to my life and your story as well. Three things. First one is this. You need to know that you are ordinary. David was ordinary. An ordinary kid on an ordinary day doing ordinary things. And you are ordinary too. You are ordinary too. Can you look to your neighbor and tell them you're ordinary? Now look to the person behind you and tell them they're ordinary too. This is a great time to go ahead and make sure your spouse is really clear that you are ordinary as well. Listen, this passage is all about embracing your ordinariness. If we're honest, this thought bothers some of us. There are some people that sit in this room, you want to be extraordinary. You don't want to be ordinary. And the reason you've never experienced anything extraordinary is because you are so busy trying to be extraordinary yourself. And ordinary people is what God is looking for. 
We don't like to think of ourselves as ordinary people. But we see in this text that David was an ordinary boy, an ordinary man doing ordinary things. He was a shepherd boy, not impressive at all. He never performed one miracle in all of his life. He played a harp, not even an electric harp, just an actual normal harp. In chapter 17, when David went and fought Goliath and defeated him, do you know what David was doing that day? David was delivering his brother's lunch, a sack lunch, a lunchable with a Capri Sun. Like, that was his job. And he goes to the scene, and he hears this giant Goliath talking, and he engages the giant. He's an ordinary guy. That's all he was. The Bible is painting a picture of David as an ordinary man who's just like me and just like you. Certainly, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. Certainly, you are uniquely made in the, the image of God. I get all of that. We have a unique DNA. We have unique fingerprints. But in the more profound sense, you are just ordinary. And that's a very good thing for you, because not only are you ordinary, but the second thing is that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. In order for God to do something extraordinary in you, you have to embrace your ordinariness, because God works through, in extraordinary ways through the ordinary people. Verse 13 says, then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Upon David from that day forward. You remember how the Bible says the last will be first? You remember how the Bible tells us that the humble will be exalted? He's not kidding. Extraordinary things happen through ordinary people. And this is the beginning of extraordinary things happening in David's ordinary life. Listen to me, church family. David did not gain his popularity by being special. David gained his popularity by being faithful. And the same thing is true of me and you. If you want to leave a legacy for your children, it doesn't happen because you convince them of how special you are. It happens because you show them how faithful you're going to be when it comes to following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only legacy that you and I should be chasing hard after. Church, God's not looking for a special somebody. He's searching for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. See, the one single thing that made God's people amazing throughout all of the Bible is that the Spirit of God covered the child of God. What caused Pharaoh to take a foreign criminal, Joseph, and make him the second most powerful man in Egypt? Genesis 41 tells us it was the Spirit of God in Joseph's life. How was Gideon able to take an army of 300 soldiers and defeat an entire Midianite army of 100,000 people without one single casualty? The Bible tells us it was the Spirit of God working through an ordinary man. How was Samson able to use a jawbone of a donkey to destroy 1,000 Philistines? The Bible tells us it was because the Spirit of God controlled an ordinary man. What gave the early church the power and courage to resist the Roman Empire and testify boldly, even if it meant they were going to die, about the name of Jesus? It tells us in the book of Acts chapter 4 that the men and women of the early church were filled with the Spirit of God. The only thing that will make you as ordinary do extraordinary things is the fact that the Spirit of God has access to every room in your heart. The Bible tells us that when the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of ordinary men and ordinary women, entire cities, no, 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 entire culture, the whole world is turned upside down. First Thessalonians, go read it. 
So God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. And then number three is God can do extraordinary things in ordinary people in unordinary places. In unordinary places. David was stuck in a field tending sheep. He was a shepherd. He would get bored and craft together a slingshot and a few figs. And that trained him for what was to come. He would waste time by playing his heart when no one was listening. He wrote music not just about God. David wrote music to God. He learned how to feed sheep, protect sheep, lead sheep, and care for sheep. Think about it, church. In that field, in that pasture, God developed humility in David as he would clean up the mess that the sheep would make. God would develop patience in David to love and care for dumb sheep in the pasture. God would develop courage in David to fend off bears and lions from the sheep's fold. All of this was done in a pasture, a field, an unordinary place. What seems unordinary to me and you was quite ordinary for David. And the same thing is true for you, mom. Your ordinary place may be that you're just a stay-at-home mom, and that's how you view it. But God wants to do something so extraordinary through you in that place. My question to you this morning is, what's God teaching you about your own personal pasture? I mean, some of you, if you're honest, you're worn out from changing diapers. You're worn out from chasing around kids. You're worn out from cleaning up after the kids. You you are worn out from saying the same thing over and over and over to the kids. What's God preparing you for in your own personal pasture? What, What is he doing in and through your life? What if I told you that God will work in your life the same way he worked in the life of David? What if I told you that he will work in your life the same way that he worked in the life of Jesus. See, David was anointed and filled with the Spirit, and then he went back to the pasture and was hunted down by Saul. Christ was anointed and filled with the Spirit, and then he went to the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that you, as a child of God, are anointed and filled with the Spirit. And guess where you go? Or guess where you might be headed? To your own personal pasture in an ordinary place. It might have become ordinary to you, but God wants to do something so extraordinary while you're there. Just like God brought the greatest work out of their pasture and cross, so God will bring the greatest work out of yours as well. See, when you read this story in the Bible, we must understand this story, it's not really about you. This story is about God. Because out of the line of David will come another king. But this king didn't come to establish an earthly earthly kingdom. This king came to establish a heavenly one. This king came not as a man with power and valor. This king came as a lamb. He came not just to make a sacrifice. This king came to be a sacrifice. This king, the perfect lamb, took my sin and all of your sin, past sin, present sin, and even future sin on himself at the cross. And it was there at the cross that he gave us the right to be forgiven from every wrong motive and every evil desire that we have ever thought or committed. And church, this king doesn't see what everyone else sees. This king sees the heart. My question to you as we close this morning is, is that good news to you or is that bad news to you? The fact that the God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, sees your heart. It's bad news for those of you who are still trying to hide sin from those around you. Because even though you might be fooling your family, you're not fooling God. 
It's good news for those of us who have tried so hard to honor him and esteem him and to bring him glory. And we feel like we continue to fall so far short. It's good news because when we're shooting for perfection, he reminds us you don't have to be perfect because I was already perfect for you. Church, God can do some extraordinary things in ordinary people. And he can do it however you look at it in unordinary or even ordinary places if our hearts will firmly and fully chase after him.